Well, I uh, thank you, thank you, Tim, for your thoughts on your your testimony. Uh, I can't think of a a more apt person to be with us today for the title of our sermon, uh, A Whole Life Response. And uh, it's great for us to uh, have the, the partnership with, with Tim Conkling and, and his missionary endeavors, um, and uh, certainly one who is a, a good example of, of what we're about to talk about. We are uh, doing a series where we're asking a question out loud as a church. We are looking at the question, uh, discovering uh, an answer to the question, what does it mean for us to be faithful as a church to engage the, our cultural moment, where we find ourselves, uh, why are we here, and what has God called us to do? So what does it look like to be faithful in our calling as a church? Now, the church, every church, has its own sort of mental framework to engage the culture around her. Every church sort of thinks, whether it's written down, everyone sort of has a way of thinking about it. Uh, a lot of churches spend, not, not uh, well, I'd say a lot of churches spend a lot of concern and energy in sort of becoming culturally isolated, um, encapsulated in their own world. Uh, and in many ways, we as a church are a counterculture. Uh, we are holding forth to the world uh, what the world will look like. The world will look like all the nations together, not killing each other, but together, loving each other. Certainly, an amazing amount of strife in the world today. The church is holding forth a distinctive culture before the world. But often that, that translates for people to continue to sort of uh, become ingrown and enco- encapsulated in their own way of being and thinking when they don't really grasp that the church is called to engage the culture in which she lives. So we're asking that question, what does it look like, and using uh, John chapter 1 as a model and using the incarnational model as our model. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, and John chapter 1, verse 14. Those two verses are, are sort of driving our thinking about what does it look like to be a church. Well, engaging culture means that we are to be incarnating the love of God. Now, we're not the gospel. We are not the gospel. But as we heard in in Tim's testimony about missions work in in Indonesia, uh, it looks like compassion for the poor. It looks like speaking another language that may not be your own language. Uh, For us, it is it is a, a, a calling to incarnate the gospel. And uh, so today, we're actually going to look at uh, John the Baptist. And uh, verses 6, 7, uh, you'll find there in John chapter 1, John 6 and 7 uh, and 8. Let me read these for you. Uh, and read this for you. This is, this is going to be the one who's going to be our, our pace setter for incarnating uh, God's purposes uh, in his cultural moment. There was a man sent from God, verse 6, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And uh, as I've been exploring this, I've been asking the question, is John the Baptist actually in John's gospel for the reason of showing us what it means to be incarnating, embodying the purposes of God. Is he there to further show us what it looks like to 
address our cultural moment. We're all, I think the vast majority of us here are familiar with John's ministry. John is the forerunner of Jesus. He is the, the one who called Israel to repentance. Uh, he had an amazingly powerful ministry. God he, he strengthened this ministry in an extraordinary way, and he drew crowds from Jerusalem and other cities out to the Jordan River. And it was there that John, uh, through his preaching of repentance, called Israel to remember faithfulness before God, and they repented, they repented of their hard-heartedness and of their sin. John got his message through to them, and they turned, they turned away. And so he was the forerunner, uh, turning hard hearts back to God prior to the ministry of Jesus. So we're familiar with that, right? So John's ministry of, of, of calling Israel to repentance. And I, it's interesting is that as John's role, John the Baptist's role was really to introduce Jesus, was really to pre- prepare an, the audience for Jesus, I looked up, what does it look like for someone to introduce a speaker for an audience? Some of you have had this task to do, right, to introduce a speaker. Uh, well, it's actually very simple. It's just a couple of things. First of all, the purpose of an introduction is to get people's attention. And uh, John the Baptist, I think he did that. Uh, the way he looked, uh, the way he way he dressed, uh, the way he preached, uh, I think he got people's attention. And then secondly, in an inter- introduction, you're to motivate people to listen. And I think John John did that for uh, for many for many reasons. And people are asking the question, "What's in it for me? What's in it for me?" As they're hearing a speaker. And when John preached a message of repentance. And that the wrath of God was to be revealed any moment, that got people's attention. And uh, what an amazing witness he was. He's described as a witness. That's his job. He is a witness to the light. And what I want to say to you is this, is that John is actually a tremendously important and perfect example of ministering in his cultural context. What I mean by that is John is uh, Jewish. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the context in which he is speaking. He is ministering to Jews. And he speaks in terms of ideas, language, history, concepts that they would relate to. John speaks a message that they could understand. It was culturally relevant, culturally connected to who those people were. And he spoke with heart, and he spoke to the heart. He was a fiery preacher, no doubt. And uh, just about everyone assumes that he, uh, he was kind of like an angry guy, right? There's no real reference to that at all, but we kind of think of him as sort of angry and uh, and sort of on people's case, and sometimes we sort of, I don't know, quietly, if this is your stance towards sinners, sort of like, yeah, tell sinners, you know, where it's at. And, and, and some, sometimes where the church has, been gra- has gravitated toward this hard stance toward the culture and using John as, as, a, as a kind of example of that. But I think John is actually one who had tremendous compassion and a heart 
for the people he was speaking to. He certainly does speak with uh, a powerful message, and he does speak with a message that is, is threatening. The wrath of God is to be revealed any moment. John's understanding of the revelation of the Messiah would mean the day of the Lord has arrived. So he's a preacher of the imminent wrath of God. In fact, at one point in the Gospels, John is anticipating that all the political structures will be reversed because Jesus the Messiah is, is here. And John is in prison wondering, really, why am I still in prison? Why hasn't the kingdom arrived in its concrete glorious form and John sends messengers to Jesus wondering are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else and John receives this message sent from Jesus saying that the the blind are seeing and those who are deaf are hearing and the lame are leaping for joy no the kingdom has arrived and what Jesus is affirming is that the kingdom is coming in stages and the and the kingdom of grace and forgiveness is being presented now in the kingdom of glory that John anticipates is coming coming down the road. But I'm going to argue that John's message was actually a message of compassion, even though it was a, a message of repentance. It was a message that, that embodied the love of God and the love of God for his people. It's interesting that in Luke... Uh, In Luke chapter 3, we're actually told that John uh, had warned the people of the coming judgment of God. And in Luke chapter 3, we hear this. So with many exhortations, John preached the good news to the people. So good news is actually associated with John John the Baptist. So here's what I want to say. It's very simple. John is an, an example of being culturally relevant to his day in this way we learn that John is an example of the incarnational model because of his self-awareness. John's self-awareness, his view of himself, his understanding of himself, tells us more about how or why God used him in his cultural moment. For instance, in John 1.15, you have it there in your worship folder. John 1.15, we hear these words. John bore witness about him and cried out, that this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John is communicating his self-understanding. He is, at the core, a humble individual. Jesus ranks higher than John. He is the eternal God the Son. John engages his culture with a stance of great humility. He bears witness with a great humility. He is presenting someone else who has greater preeminence than him. He, is a great, he has a great view of Jesus, and he is humbled by the opportunity to even be near the Word made flesh. So I'm challenging the notion that he actually spoke with anger. I'm challenging the notion that he actually spoke with condemnation in his tone. You can speak a message that's hard to say, but you can also say it with a tear in your eye. You can speak a message of, of judgment, but it's also one in which 
you realize how difficult it is to say, and you have applied this message to yourself. How did John come across in his preaching? Was he self-righteous? I don't think so. Was he prideful? I don't think so. Because those things would only reinforce the self-righteousness and the pride he was actually preaching against. And John is pressed in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. He's actually interviewed by religious authorities. And they want to know who he is. Who are you? And they ask him in verse 20, are you the Christ? He says, no, I'm not the Christ. What are you then? Are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He says, no. And then he says, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John quotes Isaiah 40. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John's very identity as a preacher, as a prophet, is given to him by God. He doesn't take this upon himself. He has been given this. So again, John's self-understanding is a way for us to understand how it is that we are to engage our culture and our cultural moment. It is to be done with great humility. When I first became a Christian, I've told this story in various ways, but I uh, lived in Encinitas, California. I was 19 years old. And Encinitas, California is famous uh, with, for some people because it is a kind of place for a pilgrimage that people take. Uh, they don't come there to go surfing, which you can do at Moonlight Beach. Um, they come there to meditate at a retreat center that was established by uh, an East uh, Indian yogi named Paramhansa Yogananda. And uh, maybe our world religions professor here uh, will know this person. But the Paramhansa Yogananda, I just kind of like saying his name once in a while. Um, The Paramhansa Yogananda uh, wrote the autobiography of a yogi. And uh, if you go to a really serious health food store, it'll be right next to the, uh, I don't know, the gluten-free yogurt or something. But it'll be right there. um, And uh, you'll get the, the autobiography of a yogi. In 1930s, he wrote this. Now... I was a quasi-New Age person. I lived in California, so that's just what you did. Um, And by the way, I was a vegetarian at the time. That was like 30 pounds ago. Um, And uh, I could not imagine uh, eating uh, pig, pork. But when I became a Christian, I kept getting invited over to Christian homes. And what did they serve? It was this bright pink ham. Um, so I gave away, I turned my way, I turned, turned, turned away from my former self-righteous vegetarianism. So for a a short time there, uh, I engaged as a Christian with people who followed the Paramhansa Yogananda. They were easy to find them. They were on the beach meditating all around the area. And uh, I, I can honestly say that the way that you reach someone, or at least gain their ear, is to speak their language. That's what missionaries do. So to speak their language means that you kind of know what they're after. They're after peace. They're after tranquility. They want harmony. They're they're after something. 
And so as a Christian, I, I could identify with that because I understood what they were after. And I would say that God prepares us to be cross-cultural in this sense by establishing in us humility. And so if we're going to engage our culture, engage the person who is next to us at work, it has to come from a foundation of humility. And as you read John, and I'm not going to give you all the verses here, but as you read John the Baptist, his self-understanding, there are multiple statements he makes about how unworthy he is to untie the sandal of Jesus. He is unworthy. He continues to, to be amazed that he is this close to redemptive history. When he sees Jesus, uh, and this is recorded in John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, and this is what John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is, again, an outward humble acknowledgement of, of how beautiful Jesus is. This is John's witness. Okay. And this must come across when we are engaging people, when we are th- thinking about our purposes for why we are a church. We must have Christ beautiful in our hearts. But also we must have sensitivity and an understanding of those that we're talking to. I shared some time back that, uh, you know, I don't really relate to people who have tattoos. Now, if you have tattoos here, I want to come and hang out with you after church, okay? So, but what I mean by that is that I don't have tattoos, and I don't understand why people have tattoos on. So I purposely watched about six episodes of L.A. Inc., I did, and it was actually pretty cool. I liked it. And it taught me something about my own self-righteousness, and that is that I didn't realize that, like, say, if someone has maybe three owls on their shoulder, that isn't just they want to look cool and have three owls on their shoulder. The three owls represent people who died. So that much of the art, artistry related to tattoos relates to sorrow, painful things that have happened to people, memories that they want to keep, and they want to keep them so badly they actually want them on their body. So it taught me that there's different ways of looking at these things. Um, and uh, so and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm here sharing with you that we're actually called as a church to minister to people who have needs and great needs and to minister to people who are in prison. In other words, when you think about the world we're called to, we have to be prepared for it. We have to speak the language of people we're trying to reach. Now, that sounds pretty simple, but that's actually what we, we have to work at that. So all I'm trying to do is to say that John the Baptist, as a model for what he did, I would say it translates because it is a humble model. As a fiery preacher, you may say, well, oh, I see. I'm supposed to be a street preacher. There may be a role for that. But I'm going to to, uh, argue that I don't know if uh, a fiery street preacher out in front of Whole Foods is going to reach people at Whole Foods. 
But the humility of John the Baptist may actually be a platform, if that was in us, to begin reaching people in our community at Whole Foods or wherever. So what I'm asking for us to think about is what does it look like for us to, to, to pursue humility? I can't give you an easy three-step process here, but you know that you are now entering into the world of someone else's experience when, for instance, a non-Christian begins to ask you questions about Christianity. When that happens, here's the message they're sending you. You speak my language. And I can ask you questions, and you will answer in such a way that I can understand you. So it's an honor when a non-Christian asks you questions about Christianity. Don't be threatened. Don't feel like you have to be, you know, an Oxford scholar. Just answer as you can, but that's an, you should consider that to be a great honor because they are saying something about your ability with their language. It would be like someone who's a Spanish speaker speaking to me in Spanish as if I could answer them, right? That, that's, a, that's a compliment. That means that you're getting close, and I want to give you a full question in Spanish, and let's see how you do. See? John the Baptist's voice worked in his cultural context because his heart was soft. His heart was not enculturated, closed off, walled off, religious. He gave a message of repentance, but it stemmed from great humility. So what I want to leave you with is this is that how I want to give you some ideas about growing in humility and sort of what that looks like. First of all, God is much more committed to our growth in humility than we will ever be, we ever will be. And here's what, some, what God does, is that Sunday after Sunday, he gives you what's called the means of grace. The means of grace are the ways in which God supplies for you what you need to grow as a Christian. So prayer, preaching, the Lord's Supper, baptism, these are means of grace whereby Scripture, these are means of grace, and these are tools or ways of, of living that God grants to us that we can grow in humility. And we grow, particularly in our view of Christ. He must expand. He must become bigger. He must become great. It's, uh, it's really not going to happen where we're really going to be concerned about our cultural moment if Christ is not becoming in us great and glorious. Remember John one twenty nine, the exclamation, when, G when John saw Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. John had a glorious Redeemer in his mind and heart far much earlier than that moment. It didn't just happen in that moment. He had been dwelling upon the need for a Redeemer, the beauty of a Redeemer, the glory of a Redeemer. And then when he saw the revelation of Jesus, he knew what he was looking at. He saw it and understood it as a privilege. His heart was, was, was leaping out. And uh, that's, that's sort of a picture of John's life, even before he was born. Uh, he, he moved in the womb, right, of, of, of Elizabeth. 
uh, being near Christ. So behold the Lamb of God is a picture of, of what needs to take place in our hearts. And God is active to use the means of grace to awaken your heart to this. And ultimately what humility is, it is the fear of the Lord. Humility is the fear of the Lord. And we, it's not just our own individual growth in this area, but we as a, as a, as a community, as a people, are growing in this, this fear of the Lord together. The fear of the Lord is really just putting God, God being seen for who he is and understood for who he is. And for not only in, do we need to pursue humility individually, but we need to pursue humility as the church across Oahu. And what I mean by this is that the task that is before us is far greater than any one church can do or any one tradition within the church can do or any one generation or any one particular calling can do. This means that this has to be animated throughout multiple churches, a concern for our culture, a concern for people, and it has to, it has to be working in multiple, multiple la- uh, ways. No one person, no one tradition can do this. And so we need to be humble as a people to cooperate with other churches, to think with them, to pray with them. In order, in order to answer the question, what does it look like for us as the church to incarnate the love of God? Ultimately, what God's calling us to do is to live out what Jesus put as the, the second great commandment. It's a commandment that's sort of lost in, in Leviticus 19, but the commandment goes like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What, what happens here is that John's ministry of preparation really does this. John speaks to, to hard-hearted Jewish hearts at that time in order to prepare the church for the heart of God for the world. They have become encapsulated, insulated, ingrown. And even the disciples themselves were catching this ingrownness and God uses John and others, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter 2. God is using these, these examples, these moments, in order to, to get the church engaged in the world like God is engaged in the world. You see, it's in the Gospel of John that we not only learn that God became flesh and dwelt among us, but we also learn from from Jesus himself, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that his son became incarnated in order for the love of God to be embodied in his church. So we are for the world like God is for the world. And so uh, John has played a, an important moment culturally in order to awaken those people to their, to their calling and to repent. And God has provided for us the means of grace today to awaken us 
to our calling to have us repent. This means that we are not thinking as we should, and it does take thought. It takes prayer. What are we to do? What are we to, to, to be for our community in order to be a faithful presence of God's, for God's pe- uh, as God's people? Okay? And so I want to encourage you, exhort you, pray with you. I want, I want to hear, elders want to hear your input. What would it look like for us uh, to be more engaging, more involved? How would we do that? What would it look like? And I want to conclude with a, with, with a, with a, uh, a little, little story. Um, it requires humility from leadership. For, leaders must be humble to hear from people who are on the front lines. I remember the story of a youth pastor in uh, Westlake Village years ago. And he turned to all the students in a leadership meeting and he said, what would it look like for us to get 500 students from Westlake High School to come to, to an event? And the kids all opened their eyes and says, just think about it. Just tell me whatever you think. And so this youth pastor who thought he was so cool and so you know, hip and you know, had all kinds of ideas had to listen to that group of students. And these students all thought about it and they said, well, we think we should do a carnival. He said, what? You mean a carnival like with dunk, dunk tanks and all that kind of stuff? He said, yeah. And he said, well, why a carnival? He says, I don't know. We've all heard about carnivals, but we've never gone to them. Like none of us. We've all, you know, seen them in movies. and We, we want to have like cotton candy and a dunk tank and like that thing you hit and the, you know, ding. And, all, you know, and, and he's like, listen, this, and this is like so uncool. This is so like, what, you, I mean, we're talking about sophisticated Southern California kids. We've got to do something that's cool. And this, that youth pastor had to, to take a big dose of humility and say, well, if these kids will own this thing and they want to embody the love of God by having a cotton candy machine and a dunk tank, he said, then let's go for it. See? Now, that's just an idea, but it's, it's a step, you see. It's a step. It became a platform, and there were hundreds of students who came out. The point is, is that in humility, that leader listened to what does it look like to speak the language of these high school students, see? And so let's ask that question together. What does it look like to speak the language of, of where we are? What does it look like to be more faithful in responding to those needs and, uh, and to being God's people uh, where God has called us? So... Let's pray.